you please join me as I pray? So gracious God and Father, we thank you for the great, the great privilege of being together as a family, enlivened by your spirit, ransomed by your son. Here we are sitting before your word, and I'm just asking in these moments, God, that you would be pleased to reveal yourself to us. Speak for your servants are listening. And I pray that where our faith has waned, where our ears have become dull to your promises, that you would awaken us, that we would hear your promises fresh and true, and that they would shape our prayers and our very lives. Help us to be the sort of people whose whose lives and prayers are saturated, soaked in, and reshaped by the promises of our God. So enable us to take those steps together as a community today. We're asking that you'd be with us and that you'd bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I love getting to officiate weddings. I've, I've done quite a few over the last 10 years or so, in part because I get the best seat in the house. I get to stand and look at bride and groom in the eye while everyone else is looking at their back. Uh, but it, it's also this moment, right, where a promise is issued that changes everything. A man and a woman enter as two, they exit as one. They're going to combine their bank accounts and their lives and their residence and everything because a promise is reordered. It actually touches every part of their life in a way that life is no longer the same. That promises carry tremendous power when they, when they are applied, when they are believed and applied. And all of a sudden that you start realizing that a promise can have impact over every area of life. And that is certainly the case when dealing with divine promises. Things that God has said to be the case. As you know, we're studying the book of Daniel, calling it Flourishing Far From Home, exploring what does it mean to be faithful exiles, and seeing how Daniel and some of his friends lived faithfully in the midst of exile in the Old Covenant. We are gleaning from paying attention to their stories, <clears throat> excuse me, what it looks like for us to be strangers and aliens and exiles in our own day and time. The first half of the book we saw was the narrative portion of his story, and we saw Daniel and his friends standing really faithfully in the midst of significant headwinds, even far from home, far from Jerusalem. And then we've said that we've kind of turned the page to the second half of the book over the last few weeks, and we're exploring the prayer journal of this faithful exile. And in a sense, we're starting to understand what is the the secret sauce, what has been happening in the secret places between this man and God that in the public places he's been able to be so bold and so faithful in the face of significant headwinds. And we're beginning to discern what does it look like to be the sorts of women and men that so spend time with God and are so shaped in his presence that we would be able to be courageous and faithful witnesses for him in a world that, that is ultimately far from home. And so the last two weeks we've seen his prayers and the what they're unlocking. That two weeks ago we saw him gain heavenly perspective as he saw God enthroned even above the chaos of the world. We saw perspective. Last week we saw him step into faithful presence because of his prayers once again that were enabling him to actually feel the emotions and the weight of all that was going on and all that was going to continue to happen. And those two things are not disconnected. When we develop 
perspective in the presence of God, we're able to be a faithful presence in the, in the, in the community of the people around us. So perspective and presence we see taking shape in his prayer life, and that ushers us into chapter 9, the third of the prayers in the prayer journal of Daniel. And in some ways, this prayer helps us make sense of the last two, of, of the, the perspective and the presence, when all of a sudden we see what a promised, saturated prayer looks like. We're going to see Daniel responding to the promises of God and praying as if they are true and seeing that that actually delivers him into more and greater promises of God. We're going to see what it means to pray prayers that are saturated by the promises of God. And when we start to pray like this, we will be a people of real, unshakable hope even over the long haul, even when the darkness persists, even when things are really hard. So as we try to make sense of this text together, we're going to ask a few questions. We're going to see a few things. We're going to see what is it that initiates promise-saturated prayers? Where do they come from? And then we're going to ask what do they look like and sound like when they're offered? And then what does it mean for them to be answered? You with me? We good? Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's keep going. Let's see, what, what sort of, what sort of uh, prayers are we called to pray as promise-saturated people? The first thing is, how do these prayers take shape? How are they initiated? Look back at the start of this chapter with me. You heard these verses read, verse 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of Darius. Now, we, this is, once again, this is situating us in the context of the narrative that we've already read. This is about 66 years into Daniel's exile. When Darius is now on the throne, he's in his 80s. This was in the latter part of his life. So when he was on the, on the throne, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel, though he is been at this for a very long time, is still hungry, is still seeking out the scriptures. Amazingly, Jeremiah, a guy that lives at the same time as him, has spoken with such authority and clarity that his writings are already received as God's word. And Daniel is studying what Jeremiah has said to be the case. And in so doing, he, he all of a sudden discerns, okay, God said this was going to last 70 years. For our purposes, I just want to show you briefly Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. These may have been the very verses that he was studying. It says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and you will come and you will pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. So what we get in Daniel is that here he is in a prayer time with God reading the scriptures. And he reads in Jeremiah 29 that God said, 70 years in, if you seek me with your whole heart, I will come and I will get you. So Daniel is reading the scriptures. He's believing these scriptures. And for that reason, in verse 3 and 4, listen, does this not sound like seeking God with all of your heart? He is actively, wholeheartedly responding to this text. Look at what it says. So I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy 
with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession saying, Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, what is happening is that Daniel is having promise-saturated prayers initiated in his soul. And the way that those sorts of prayers are initiated is when, when we, as the people of God, read the scriptures and believe them and respond wholeheartedly to them. Daniel is not just praying his circumstances to God, which quite frankly, 66 years into being far from home and dealing with all the headwinds that he's been dealing with, if you were just praying your circumstances to God, it starts to feel pretty hopeless. And some of us pray some of these sorts of flimsy, faithless prayers, if we're honest, I certainly do, where I, I come to God and my, my prayer time, if I'm not careful, just feels more like a worry session in God's presence. Like I come and here, here's what it is and this is what I'm concerned about and God, would you do this? And Daniel's doing something different. He's coming to the promise of God and it's generating hope and confidence and courage. The promise of God is becoming the, the, the spine of his prayers, the strength of his prayers that he's been sitting there for 66 years and he just discerned that God said, listen, it's gonna be about 70 before I call you home. And what could be a prayer offered in faithless dejection is now full of hope and anticipation. He's coming, he's going, oh God, you could hear me. Because faithful exiles pray promise-saturated prayers when they're reading and loving and responding to the scriptures. My dad's one of my heroes in life, and he told me a story about a season that happened actually before I was born. My three other siblings were young and at home. I came along much later. My, my brothers call me an accident. My parents call me a miracle. Um, so my dad had three little kids. He had just had surgery on his neck and was immobilized. And there were some really hard things going on at work. He was stressed out. And he said, never in my life had I been so inundated with anxiety. He said, I never thought of myself as an anxious person, but it felt like anxiety was going to swallow me whole. And he said, in my time with God, I, I read... Um, Isaiah chapter 26, and in the middle of Isaiah chapter 26, in verse 3, there's a promise that says God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the Lord because he trusts in him. And my dad said like a light breaking into a dark place, he read that verse and he said, I actually believed it. I believed that, okay, God, you promised that you will deliver perfect peace to the man whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And he said, so I memorized that verse and I started repeating it like a hundred times a day. And he said, Jeremiah, I didn't fix everything right away, but that verse saved my life. He said, I thought my anxiety was going to be the end of me. And in the coming weeks and months, I would over and over and over say, God, you promised that you will keep the person in perfect peace who keeps their mind stayed on you. So I'm thinking about you today. I'm thinking about your character. And he would repeat it over and over. You see, promise-saturated praying is initiated when we read God's Word, we love it, and we respond wholeheartedly to it. It might be that you're in a season where anxiety wants to tell your story. Well, God has a promise about that. And to pray prayers that are promise-saturated responds to this promise by rehearsing it and praying it. Or it might be that you're in a season where you're lacking wisdom and you need wisdom from God and you read in the book of James that he says, if you lack wisdom, ask me and I will give it to you. It's a promise of God that he will give wisdom freely to those who ask. 
that can start to give shape to our prayers. Or maybe later in the book of James, you feel like, God, you've been so distant from me. And he promises at the end of the book of James, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That if you come to me hungry and you push for my presence, I will pour out an experience of my presence to you. I've promised it. You see, your Bible sitting in your lap is chock full of hundreds of promises that will be kept because God always keeps his promises. And what he's inviting us into, if we're going to be the sort, of, the sort of exiles that stay faithful for the long haul, he wants us to learn how to pray in such a way that we're, we're reading the promises and allowing them to, to, find, to find purchase in our soul in a way that they start giving shape to the way that we're praying. That here's Daniel praying with newfound enthusiasm 66 years in because all of a sudden he's, he's alive to the fact that God has made some promises that have impact on my story in this moment. You see, promise-saturated prayers are initiated when we read and believe and wholeheartedly respond to the scriptures. This is a different kind of praying. This is dialogue, not just monologue. This is what Eugene Peterson, he says, when learning to pray, he says, all prayer is answering speech. We learn to pray by learning to love God's word and then responding to it at a heart level. So these are the sorts of prayers that are satisfying and sustaining Daniel's soul. But that's not all. What I want us to pay attention to is as this promise initiates prayer in Daniel, I want us to ask the question, well, what does the prayer sound like when it's actually offered? When he, when he gives words to this sort of promise-saturated prayer. So look at verses 5 through 14 with me. I'm going to read these verses, and they're on the screen. That they're going to have the first-person plural pronouns highlighted. I want you to pay attention to as Daniel starts to pray how he situates himself in the midst of what's going on. Starting in verse 5, it says this, We have sinned, done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the peoples of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." The first note that I want us to pay attention to here, the first thing that I think is screaming at us from this text, 
is that promise-saturated prayers are distinctly humble. They're so humble. Now, one of the things that's unique about Daniel in the Old Testament, he is one of the only Old Testament characters that is presented to us as faithful at every turn. If you've just been reading his story straight through, there are no egregious sins in Daniel. He is operating faithfully in response to God. He's been praying three times a day. He has declared faithfully the word of God to the powers that be. He has represented God beautifully at every turn. Yet, when he is reading the scriptures and he's seeing God for who he is, as the promise-making and promise-keeping God, he is so humbled and broken in his presence that when he prays, he says, God, all the sin, it's all in me. He is exposed before God in such a way that this isn't just lip service. He really is saying, Israel has been sinful for generations. My dad and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, all of the generations back have been faithless and they've broken covenant with you. And their DNA is in me. And by the way, God, I am broken too. He is so humbled before God. He is not doing any religious bartering. He's not trying to negotiate with God or say, you know, look, I've prayed three times a day and I'm so faithful and I study the scriptures and God, you really owe me here. He is totally broken before God. Like, like the Apostle Paul, I think Daniel would probably say, of all the sinners, I am chief. He is truly identifying with the people profoundly. And the truth is that when we start to pray in this way, like when we pray in such a way that's in response to the scriptures, daily slowing down and letting God speak and being humbled by his word and having hope in his promises, that we come broken before him. Something happens in our souls when we operate like this. It actually changes the way that the church operates because it creates space in your heart to actually receive the grace of God. If you have it all together, there's no room for you to taste the joys and the beauties of the grace of God. It's only available to broken, sinful people. And, and it's not just that, it actually helps us carry other people's burdens. There are some people that have been caught in sin that maybe you've never known. That's, that happens. But that doesn't make you better than them. That's a grace of God that he has protected you from some particular addiction or sin in your story. But when we pray like this, what begins to happen in the church, when we all are humble before God and go, oh God, it's in me. Rebellion to your word is shot through my story for generations. We all of a sudden are equipped to carry each other's burdens because we don't create a space where one person's sitting down the aisle and going, well, I'm a real sinner and they're not really in this category like I am. Listen, if we've seen God in his holiness... If we've heard him speak powerfully in his word, what we realize is this. There are no variations in the categories. We are all desperate for God to rescue, which means we are equipped to carry each other's burdens in a real way. It is a level playing field. Which, incidentally, when those two things are true, it obliterates cynicism and judgment in the life of the church and even beyond. Because what we have is a church that is humble, it's not defensive and saying, we've always done it right. We're free to confess the sins of our past, the ways that the church has been complicit with things like slavery and racism in the history of our nation. That should cause brokenness to go, oh God, forgive us. Not like them, but us. 
when, when we don't defend and pretend like we've done it all right, the, the claims of hypocrisy and the ugliness that has been so true of the church is broken apart. We're able to go, yes, we are desperate and need the grace of God. And now cynicism and judgment and hypocrisy start to come apart. You see, prayers that are initiated by the promises of God are powerful because they're humble. And so I just, before we move on, let me ask you this question. Do you find yourself consistently thinking that you're better than other people? If you do, your prayers are being hindered in a very real way. Dare I say powerless prayers? Because God is against the proud. He actively resists the proud. But this sort of prayer that sustains the souls of faithful exiles is initiated by the word and the promises of God in such a way that humbles us and lays us low. And now from this low position, his power floods in. This is the sort of prayer that will sustain the souls of faithful exiles. It's offered in humility. And for that reason, it's offered in a way that exalts God and God only. Look at verses 15 through 19 quickly. It says this, Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and we've done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas. Listen, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Pay attention. Act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. You see, we offer humble prayers, and humble prayers exalt God and God alone because they have nothing else to point to. The prayer is offered, have mercy, not because of anything we've done, but because of your commitment to your own name. We are called by your name, so your commitment to us is to your own glory. The beauty is this. Someday when you step into glory, if your faith is in Jesus, you will be welcomed. And in that moment, there will not be one ounce, not like a sliver of pride. You won't step in and be like, well, yeah, I did make a pretty good choice and I am pretty holy and I prayed and I love God a lot. (laughs) You're going to step in and you're going to go, ah, all is grace. It was all a gift. All I had to offer you was my sin. And what you offered in response was your commitment to your own glory as you poured out your grace on me in vast amounts. It is stunning what you have done on my behalf. Do you see that the sorts of prayers that are initiated by the promises of God are humble and for that reason they exalt God and God alone. He gets all of the glory. There's no more bartering and there's no more negotiating. All of our religious games are done when we start praying like this. And beautifully, these prayers aren't just initiated and offered, but they're answered. 
I want you to see verses 20 through 23 with me and recognize this reality that when we're praying promised saturated prayers, when we are calling out to God, you are not just whistling in the wind. You're not just speaking to the ceiling and the four walls around you. Listen, God hears your prayer. And we serve a God who answers prayer. Verse 20 through 23, this is the way he says it. While I was speaking, (laughs) Daniel's going to get interrupted by God because he's so eager to answer him. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. I love, (laughs) Daniel is still keeping time according to the evening sacrifice. It hasn't happened in 70 years since Jerusalem was sacked. But he still goes, ah, it's about time that we'd be doing the sacrifice in the temple. Verse 22, he says, He made me understand speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Promise-saturated prayers are answered because... We are greatly loved. Daniel is profoundly loved by God in such a way, did you hear it? It says that while he was speaking, God came. It says that the angel came swiftly. And when Gabriel gets there, he says, I came as soon as you started praying. It's almost as if God is like waiting on his tiptoes for someone to read and believe his word and call out in response to it. Because when Daniel starts praying in response to the promises God has made, he's like, whoosh, your prayer up to heaven, my word down to you. He is eager to meet with and to answer the prayers of his people. And it says it's because he loves them, because he loves Daniel. Is this unique to Daniel? I would say no and yes. Uh, Is this sort of love that God has for Daniel, is it unique to him? Well, no. Listen, if you are in Jesus today, you have been loved like God's own child. And by virtue of your trust placed in Jesus, what God sees when he looks at you is the perfection and the beauty and the glory of his conquering son, Jesus. It's what he sees and he delights in you. I was studying the gospel with my two older boys the other night at bedtime, and I was trying to help them understand the beauties of grace and the freedom of the gospel. And and we got done, and I looked at one of my sons, and I said, what does God think of you? (laughs) And he laid back on the bed, and he looked up at the ceiling, and he said, he thinks I'm amazing. (laughs) And I said, ah, you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing it. If you lay down at night and what runs through your head is how could I possibly be loved after all I've done? How could I ever be forgiven? God must be disappointed in me or ashamed of me or embarrassed by me. Listen, that is not the good news of the gospel. What is true of you is that he loves you. He was willing to die for you. And he sees in you the beauty of his own son and all of his perfection. So when we ask the question, is the love that God has for Daniel unique to Daniel? The answer is no. And it's yes. 
Now, Gabriel doesn't fly swiftly to every prayer that we pray. There were other people praying in this season, and they did not have intimacy with God in the same way. I think, I hope that it encourages you and challenges you to know that Daniel had a special intimacy with the Father, and that's available to us. And not everyone is going to step into it. It's a great sadness that I've spent so many years chained by my own prayerlessness. Daniel has been seeking God faithfully day after day, year after year, decade after decade, and he has a special relationship with God. He didn't earn it. It's not his religion, but it's his response to the grace of God that has empowered him, has brought him into something else, and that's available to you. Oh, I hope that God raises up hundreds of saints within the body of Seven Mile Road that think, I want to be a dear friend of God. You see, promise-initiated prayers are answered because God loves us, and they're answered with an even greater promise. I want to finish. I'm going to take about seven or eight minutes on the last few verses, and just before I do, let me give a little bit of context. Verses 24 to 27 are known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. This is God's answer to Daniel's prayer, the content of it. Uh, for some, this is, there's been a lot written about this. Uh, some have made like charts and maps of their end times based off of these chapters. And I, I just say this, I, I'm not in the camp that believes that we can, we can kind of create maps and charts with such specificity about all that's going to happen in the end times, though I love my brothers and sisters that read the scriptures that way. And I may very well be wrong, and when I meet Jesus, I welcome his rebuke on that. I mean that. I mean, I, I, don't plan to, I don't pretend to have it all together. But I think it's helpful not to lose the punchline the power, the purpose of prophecy. And so I want to just make sure that's clear for us. I think it's helpful to note that, that as it relates to these verses, a few comments on these verses that help us situate our mind. Uh, the church father Jerome in 400 AD wrote about these verses, and when he wrote about it, he just wrote, here are the nine opinions of the greatest thinkers of our day. I'll let you figure it out. We're still reading Jerome's theology almost 2,000 years later, and he was like, I'm not even going to hazard my own opinion on this. Uh, or Alistair Begg, a more recent preacher of the word, said this, and what follows, this is the introduction to a sermon on these verses, he says, and what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening, and as often as necessary for the rest of my life, until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, will disappoint others, will confuse many, and I hope encourage a few. Uh, I'll say this, I believe that there's tremendous power in these verses and I want to draw it out for us, but I also recognize that those things are true. I'm not going to put everything to rest that great thinkers have been wrestling with for hundreds and hundreds of years. But I want us to hear the answer that God gives because what he is giving is an even greater promise than the one that Jeremiah was initiated by at the beginning. Let's look at these verses together. Verse 24, it says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. So the word weeks is literally sevens, and most all commentators believe that this means groups of seven years. So Jeremiah comes praying about, are the 70 years almost over? And the answer that he gets is, well, 70 times seven. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Listen, there's six purpose statements in verse 24. This is the punchline. God's going, this is what's coming. I'm going to finish the transgression 
I'm going to put an end to sin. I'm going to atone for iniquity. I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm going to seal both vision and prophet. And I'm going to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one. There is no noun there. It's just the most holy. So something holy is going to be anointed. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it will be built again with a squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Got it? (laughs) I think the beauty of this, right, is that Daniel is getting an answer that is drawing his heart into an even greater and truer promise. He came with a particular concern. God, are we almost done? And God sends Gabriel to him quickly and he says, listen, I'm actually doing something even bigger than the thing that's in your heart. Daniel is so concerned about the temple. When are we going to get to do the evening sacrifice again, God? And he says, well, we're about seven weeks from that meaning about 49, 50 years, which incidentally, the temple was rebuilt about 50 years after this prophecy. So he gets an answer to his prayer because he's greatly loved by God and God comes and he says, it is coming in about seven weeks. And then he says, and after that, there's going to be 62 weeks and then an anointed one is going to come. A total of about 483 years, which generally gets us to the time of Jesus, whether that's the start of his passion week, whether that's his death, the start of his ministry, Lots of people have written a lot about trying to get the dates exactly right. I think what is profound is that God is saying, listen, you're so concerned about the temple, but something greater than the temple is coming. And after 62 weeks, the Holy One is going to be cut off and have nothing. This is Jesus on the cross. And he says, after that, there will be one more week. There's lots written about this this kind of tricky 70th week. Some think there's a huge gap between the 69th and the 70th week that is the church age. Some think that the 70th week stretches out for a longer period than the other weeks. Uh, I'm not really sure. What I know is this, that he says that there's going to be another destruction of the temple. And I think that's the point for Daniel. Is that Daniel is going, oh God, when are you going to restore the temple? And he goes, well, the temple is going to be restored. And then I'm going to do this miraculous work through the anointed one. And then guess what? After the temple was rebuilt, it's just going to be destroyed again because it's not about the temple. It's about the anointing of the Holy One that's going to bring an end to transgression and end to sin and eternal righteousness. He's pointing to the greater promise. And he's helping Daniel understand that in the midst of his promised saturated praying, and this is, this is what happens for our souls as well. We all have things that concern us. And what God is saying is, seek out my promises and pray in response to them. And what you will find is that I will answer you because I love you. And as I answer you about your particular concerns, as I meet you in the midst of it all, what I will deliver you into is something even grander and truer that will finally put your soul at rest. One even greater than Daniel who is going to come 
is the anointed one. And what we know is this, that he was so humble that he didn't just identify with the sins of the people. He took the sins of the people into his very bones. And that as he died and was laid in a grave, he was putting your sin and my sin to death. To, as verse 24 says, the answer that God sends, I'm going to put an end to transgression. Sin is going to end. Righteousness is going to extend. And then he was able to raise our sinful flesh up and situate us in the heavenly so that we have a living hope no matter what we are going through. You see, promise-saturated prayers sustain the souls of faithful exiles because it's in these sorts of prayers that we can deal with our present needs in a real way while having our hearts situated in a future hope that will never disappoint. Amen? Let me pray for us. So Father, we thank you We thank you that every word in the scriptures has been inspired and written for our benefit. I pray that we would love the word and we would seek it out and we would wrestle with it. And I pray that as we do, we would become a people that are saturated in your promises, praying in response to them. Wherever my friends or my brothers and sisters have come in today weary and wondering, how long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? I pray that they would read and love and respond wholeheartedly to the promises found in the scriptures and that you would enliven them and draw them into a living hope in Jesus and that we would be a people that stand faithfully for you no matter the headwinds that we face. Help us to be those sorts of people for the glory of your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.